The Dalai Lama once said that today, more than ever before, life must be characterized by a sense of universal responsibility, not only nation to nation and human to human, but also human to other forms of life. Join me in conversation with some of the world's most creative thinkers to explore the importance of ethics to this responsible decision-making in today's technologically infused world. Artists, entrepreneurs, scientists, journalists, academics, and beyond navigate the gray, the blend of right and wrong, of opportunities and risks on all sides of our most important challenges, whether gene editing, civilian space travel, or artificial intelligence. They also probe the age-old and more ethically black and white behaviors, such as sexual misconduct, human trafficking, and life-threatening inequality. Our guests endeavor to transcend religious, political, national, and ethnic perspectives, but recognize the inevitable biases we all bring. The term ethics can make us uncomfortable. At the Ethics Incubator, we confront the E-word head-on. It may be inconvenient or even unclear, but ethical conundrums underpin almost every headline and affect almost every human choice. With truth under threat and the boundaries of humanity blurring, I believe that ethical decision-making tethers us to our humanity. As always, we welcome your thoughts. Mike, thanks so much for having us. Uh, it's particularly great to be in your home and to be in Charlottesville. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Um, can we start before we get into talking about what happened in Charlottesville with um, how you became mayor, uh, 2016 to 2018? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, welcome to Charlottesville. Um, it is nice to have you in our home. First time it's been used as a studio, probably <laughs> last, but. Um, so the, I ran for city council in Charlottesville um, as an outgrowth of my work as a community activist. I was the head of my neighborhood association in a historic neighborhood near the downtown mall. The mayor is selected from within the city council okay. in Charlottesville, many other cities in Virginia. So the city council votes for the mayor. They select the mayor from their ranks. So I became the mayor in my very first city council meeting. So already, though, Charlottesville is on the radar because the University of Virginia is such a prominent university uh, and known internationally. But when you came into this role, um, where did you get your, what I'll call your true north or your guiding ethical principles? Is this from, from family, from religion, from other leaders, from your education? Um, when you started this role, where did you think you were going to get your, your guideposts from? I started caring about public service and progressive principles in high school. Yeah, my parents were both journalists, both and had done political journalism. My dad okay. was at the Washington Post, but they both started as reporters. So I, okay. I, they, they brought that kind of right. inquiring spirit of journalists, and then um, and political awareness, presumably, and politi super political awareness. Okay. So the conversation around dinner tables in my house mm -hmm. was 
extremely aware, extremely probing. Then you have kind of the, um, I, I think even for my grandparents, you had this hyper aware. My, my grandfather was a, you know, was in World War II as a Jeep mechanic with the army, and you, there, there was an awareness of the stakes of these world issues that I was also raised with. And I started in law school, I mean, I, you know, one of my first jobs out of college was, was running a congressional primary. Um, in Massachusetts, and then I was working in the Virginia House of Delegates. I was working on a U.S. So Senate very campaign. politically aware, very politically savvy, even and caring um, about government, and caring, about, caring government, about government, and caring about your community. Nonetheless, probably not expecting what happened here in August of 2017. Right. And uh, you mentioned your grandfather being, you know, involved in what was a global war. Um, one might say that what happened in Charlottesville is symptomatic of global problem and actually a symptom that is manifesting itself around the world in different ways. Yeah. But could you tell us a little bit about exactly how um, you lived what happened? As I understand it, there were three phases. There was first uh, a very anti-Semitic intervention, then there was an intervention by the Ku Klux Klan, and then finally there was the big explosion in August. So for anybody who might not be familiar with the, with the sequence, can you walk us through that and, and in particular what that looked like as mayor. Sure. So the prior year in 2016, three months after I became mayor, there was a push to uh, get, get rid of or tear down a statute of Robert E. Lee that had been put in place in the Jim Crow era in the 1920s, right, right near the downtown mall. Robert E. Lee being a Confederate general in the South, representing the, slavery for those who right. might not know. Yeah. Um, at the same time, there was a law in place in Virginia that created substantial legal difficulties depending on who was going to litigate about this. Um, the interpretation of many people was that a court decision had opened a window for that law not to apply to this statute. And that was the, so there was, there was a window or an opportunity for the statute to be moved. So that opened this very um, vigorous six month long debate in Charlottesville about what would happen with these statues. And I led this initiative to have a much broader conversation than just this one statue and have it be about race right. and public spaces. And we created a commission that had 17 hearings over six months and was charged with not just talking about the Lee statue, but the whole project of changing the narrative by telling the full story of race in Charlottesville. So, and, and I read, and, is, and tell me if this is true, that your position was that the statue should be left in place as a way to make sure that people don't forget history. Uh, that's probably oversimplifying it, but perhaps using it as education, perhaps maybe even putting something around it, um, but not to take it down because that, in a sense, erases history. Is well, that, is that I really ended up following the recommendations of the Blue Ribbon Commission right. that we set up, which was majority African-American. A number of people uh -huh. on the commission actually changed their positions on this issue okay. as they listened to citizens come and talk to them, including a number of uh, African, many African Americans who came, who were local residents, came and talked to the commission and said that they wanted history remembered right. and they wanted to add and tell the full story. But that if we, you know, there was there was a neighbor of mine who said this this very powerful thing to me when I asked her what she thought, and she was from an, a, a long-standing African American mm -hmm. family um, that lived in Fifeville, neighborhood that I used to live in, and she said, "I want those statues to stay so that my grandchildren know what happened here." Mm -hmm. It's a very counterintuitive position, but it was heard over and over and over again, and the commission ended up recommending that the statues stay in Charlottesville and be recontextualized. But it's not a, it's not a position that is unheard of, because, for no. example, at Oxford, 
um, the statue of Cecil Rhodes, who represents all kinds of negativity as well. It was determined there that that statue will stay. Others are still battling. Stanford is looking at Unit Borough Sarah. Yale did make some changes. Um, Yale took down the right. names um, in some of the residential colleges and replaced um, in particular Calhoun. And this happened uh, in Princeton with Woodrow yeah. Wilson. There was a right. huge question about what to do about, right. you know, the, I mean, his legacy right. as supportive of eugenics, as yeah. an open racist, you know, you, and the, it, it creates a question that's very local mm -hmm. about how do you deal with memorials to people who were objectionable or hateful or stood for lots of things we don't yeah. like and how do you how do you address it and one of the you know the the idea here was you could come up with solutions locally that that were that were born out of the local process right. and so we had this process the so so council voted um, in a narrow vote to to move the statue and, okay. to, and to actually to sell it. That was the, that was the decision. So to a museum or something? Well, yes. Okay. It could have been, yeah, so it could have been to a museum, another city, university. Right. And um, there, there was immediately a lawsuit under this Virginia law that led to an injunction by a local judge. So there had been an action by council, but the action was stopped. So the judge says nobody's moving the statue for the moment. Which I understand now led to a real fraught, um, frictionful, uh -huh status where you had a lot of people who wanted to do something but everything was stalled and that was what teed up the series of events that started to happen so the, richard spencer who is a graduate of the university of virginia invented the term alt-right mm -hmm. led this rally for trump right after trump was sworn in where you had you know all these crew cut right. uh, neo-nazi appearing mm -hmm. male youth doing kind of heil mm -hmm. salutes to spencer they started a, um, you know, a, 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 a pro-Russian white nationalist organization that led all this. Graduate of the University of Virginia. So he comes in early May after the council vote, I think was in um, late February. The injunction was in March. Uh, so he comes in early May and leads a rally of over 100 of these male youth who have this neo-Nazi appearance with tiki torches right. around the base of the Robert E. Lee statue. And that instantly created an image that raced around the world. And as mayor, I did this, I mean, I, I, I participated in the outrage and tried to lead, lead it around this. So we did a statement and said, this is, we're a welcoming city, but such hatred is not welcome here. This is reminiscent of the Ku Klux Klan. Right. You know, things like that really to galvanize the city, but you had this, because it's a very well-known city and because it's a notable one and because a lot of people know about it, that created a real sensation. And social sensation. media, and we'll come back to social media later, but. Well, a lot of this was right. done solely for social media. Right. Um, he, he, he did things later on. When all was said and done after the next two events, right. he and his followers came back and did what was called a flash mob, where they had torches right. again in October of that year. And they they stay. It was like five minutes long, but it was purely, purely manufactured for social, media. for social media, so they could have Facebook lives up. Um, so that was the first event. And then the second event actually was the Klan. Right. Is that right? So yes, it was like an offshoot of what had been the Ku Klux Klan mm -hmm. uh, in North Carolina. Really pathetic, terrible people who 
dress up in these uh, ragtag bunch, as I could tell, number of criminals in them, and they would do these rallies. I don't, I didn't see them as representing anything, some significant social movement, but they were these ragtag opportunists who wanted to represent themselves as the Ku Klux Klan, and they said, we're going to do a rally in Charlottesville, the protest of the And why not? Robert because Charlottesville, the stage is already set, the world is already looking. Right. So, and they wanted to do it at the base of the Robert E. Lee statue, and that was a permit that was duly applied for mm -hmm. under our laws and our procedures for, um, for, the, for the beginning of July. And they, so that, uh, by, by a number of twists and turns, that ended up being about as big and as uh, controversial and as sensational as it possibly could have been. There was a, a despite the efforts of all the city leadership, including myself, to create this message of let's, don't take the bait. They, right. they want us, they, they want a confrontation. So we set up this organization called Unity Seville, which had a whole slate of alternative justice-focused and unity-focused right. programming, including education about mm -hmm. what hatred was in America today at the African-American Heritage Center. And we had a people's picnic and we had all these things. A thousand people still needed to go bear witness, and there were a number who, want, who wanted to confront. There was, um, there was a um, confrontation that happened with the police, and the police made a number of mistakes afterward, and the police used tear gas okay. against the, the counter-protesters who came after the Ku Klux Klan departed. That was a huge error by the police, and in our system, it's an additional... So it's looking like the innocent people who are coming out to watch something that is basically a demonstration of hate speech are the ones who are getting tear gassed. Right. Okay. Uh, and in our system, it's more complicated because the police are not under the mayor's control in right. our system of government. So there's a we governance have... point where, as you explained it to me earlier, the city manager is the one who has all the authority. Is that correct? Right. We have a council manager form of government, which is in place in almost 50% of American cities and around the world, where it's modeled on... Uh, corporate governance, where you've got a board of directors and you have a CEO. A CEO is hired by the corporate board. Corporate board makes policy, does the budget, right. so on. But the CEO is in charge of the operational activities, and the board, city councilors, the mayor are not supposed to participate in operational details. So I was removed from the policing decisions that were made. It was a very awkward decision. Very awkward setup when you have crises like this. Right. So then August happens. And what triggered this big, terrifying, and deadly uh, event in August? Well, so you had a local, it's amazing how much, how many events can turn on individuals. One person, one actor, you know, you sit, a lot of this has brought to mind just the, the power of individuals in this time, both as leaders and just as, as activists. And you had one right-wing blogger who had made it his crusade to take down the vice mayor of Charlottesville, who was African-American, who had made it his mission to do something about the Lee statue. So you had this, this um, so mono So the origin mono, was about the, the Lee statue. And the blogger uh, named Jason Kessler wanted to be a celebrity in these new alt-right circles around the country. So he wanted to be connected to people like Richard Spencer and all these other uh, you know, neo-Nazi, neo-fascist people out there in this universe of the now what we know as the alt-right. So he made it his mission to capitalize on each one of these events that was happening 
and create more and more uh, spectacle around what was happening in Charlottesville and had filed for the Unite the Right permit, I believe, before the KKK filed for theirs. But so that played into this whole summer of mounting excitement among... Did they get the permit? Every... So they never... This is a nuance also that people don't know that goes to the governmental, the actual facts. Jason Kessler, I believe, never actually was granted the... the he was granted the permit, I believe, only by default when a federal judge ruled against the city's decision to grant him a permit only in this different location. So okay. one of the interventions that I led, again, through this strange power of the mayor and a council manager system was to overrule mm -hmm. our city manager and our chief of police and our city attorney, all of whom were, did not think that we had the facts or the law on our side to try and relocate the rally to a safer location. We definitely didn't have the facts on our side to cancel, mm -hmm. to, to, to not grant the permit because, so to, because of what the law because is. Because of what but the we, law is. We tried yeah. to relocate it to the safer location. And because of that, the decision that the city manager announced was that the permit would be granted, but only for this other location. And that's a detail that a lot of people So that was missed. just a mistake. Because, well, no, we, it was our decision was grant the permit, but only at a new location. And then we were sued. Oh, I see. The next day by the Virginia ACLU Same. and Kessler and this other institute. Mm -hmm. And then that litigation happened that the, the five days before the event was scheduled to happen. You were and then sued we lost because everybody court. felt that you should be able to, that they should be able to hold the rally at the original place that they requested? We were sued because the, because the Virginia ACLU and, the, and Kessler felt that they needed to be proximate to the Lee statue, which was what the speech purportedly was going to be about. And most all, most First Amendment So the ACLU cases. and Kessler are on the same side of this? Yes. Okay, that's a curious situation. But the ACLU has, you know, I mean, a lot of our free speech law in America, another complicated right. detail that people, you know, forget, has been created by the ACLU representing right. uh -huh. groups like the Ku Klux Klan. Right. And, you know, that, that's, that's the, the law that we have, which is a very, in many respects, wonderful set of, traditions and principles we have, which in many respects. holds yeah. that mm -hmm. toxic, hateful speech is protected mm -hmm. unless it becomes an imminent incitement to unlawful action, unless right. it becomes, or unless it becomes uh, speech about a planned criminal act. Right. I think free speech is definitely an issue, and we'll come back to free speech in a minute, but what happened at the rally, just briefly, we all saw the horrendous pictures of the young woman who was killed when the car drove into a crowd. Yeah. Um, what else was the message? Was the message ultimately about the statue and about the gentleman who was uh, your vice mayor, or was there a different message that ultimately came no, through? No, the message of the Unite the Right rally was, um, it was ultimately an invasion of the city by over a dozen paramilitary organizations that had all uh, become much stronger and emboldened mm -hmm. in this Trump political era mm -hmm. to, to kind of invade public spaces. And they all, remember, this was called Unite the Right. So they wanted to take kind of a well-known 
college town that was also a soft target mm -hmm. that had had already the series of sensational right so already the world controversial events this year right I mean like the international media that started following us mm -hmm. after the May event with Richard Spencer was extraordinary it was on CNN it was it was all over the place and then so you had you know there were satellite trucks who mm -hmm. kind of came here you but know this, earlier this that week paramilitary just, I think is really important because it's very important so we have a second amendment also right and I don't think that this is about, if I'm understanding correctly, this is not about the right to bear arms. But the, when you use the word paramilitary, are you suggesting that there were, the arms were used to threaten criminal activity as opposed to other forms of acceptable free speech? So these groups that came here, and, and we know this now because of exhaustive research that was done after the event, in part by Georgetown University's Center for Institutional uh, for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, which we did a lawsuit with them successfully against the paramilitary groups that involved a lot of discovery, including in the so-called dark dark web, where there were hidden chats that were happening that you needed passwords to get into, and so on. So there's a lot more facts there. They were set up like militia groups. They had command structures. They went on sorties into the neighborhood. They had insignia. They had you know, I talked to a gentleman who's a, who's a friend of mine, African-American guy in his early 60s who grew up in Charlottesville, and he was just coming out of the gym mm -hmm. Saturday morning when he saw a bus come from D.C., mm -hmm. uh, and they filed out of the bus with their firearms as if they were, you know, uh, coming into a, a war site. It was like a platoon, and that was how they were set up. So the discovery that we, or the research that we did and the Georgetown did showed that they were set up as paramilitary groups. And the reason that that's significant, it's significant for a lot of reasons. The, the definition of the state is you have a monopoly on legitimate force. Right. So that's crumbling if you start having groups feel emboldened to come and conduct Behave themselves a like a military in public. That was one of the most extraordinary things that came out of Charlottesville. Then you have a really complicated reality of the Second Amendment in Virginia and in a lot of states where we are um, what's called a Dillon's rule or a, an anti-home rule state. So the Virginia legislature, which is in the pocket of the NRA, mm -hmm. has passed a law that prevents any city from interfering with the right to bear arms at all and have munition, ammunition. So we were, even if we had wanted to stop arms from being on a public park, for instance, inside the city's borders, we could not. We right. were foreclosed under clear Virginia law by this, by, this, by this law that was passed and by the legal principles around it. So that created a, a huge paradox. We can't even right now ban firearms from being brought into city council chambers, whereas, clear, whereas they're not allowed to be brought into courts. So courts are under a separate arm of government, so the Virginia courts under the Virginia Supreme Court can bar firearms from being in a court, but we can't bar them from city council. So just to be clear, when you say arms, you mean assault weapons also? Anything, yeah. Anything. Assault weapons, okay. and handgun, okay. rifle, anything. You, it's an, it's an okay. open carry state, which means that if you choose to openly display it, there's, almost, there's no law around that. If you choose to conceal it, then you have to have a permit. So these... So, so you had these paramilitary groups come knowing that, that they were within the full force of law to openly bear any kind of weapons they wanted, including AR-15. So that's one of the things that you saw in this Unite the Right rally was hundreds of, of assault, assault weapons. bearing yeah. wet people mm -hmm. conducting themselves like paramilitary groups in our public spaces mm -hmm. and ready for, for street fighting. 
So just before we get to, to come back to this point about leadership and what their leadership looks like, because you mentioned the importance of an individual, somebody like a blogger or somebody like uh, the, the person who invents the term alt-right. Right. Um, but just to let you finish exactly what happened that day, and then, and then let's move on to the leadership question. So you had a, the, the rally was set for Saturday, August 12th. The prior night, there was a, early, a kind of pre-invasion of the UVA mm -hmm. campus, which is called Grounds here. Mm -hmm. That, uh, where, where you had this torchlit procession where they were shouting things like, Jews will not replace us, and where there was a conflict between UVA students who gathered and around. And that's public uh, grounds. It's public grounds, public university. Okay. That created all kinds of, uh, there's been lots of questions about what happened at, the UV, at UVA to not try to intervene in this mm -hmm. in a more aggressive way earlier on that would have been grounded on public safety. I was on the phone that night to the COO of the university at about 8.45 after I got word about what was happening and he was on vacation <laughs> and was and started looking at his website and he said, I don't, and then I, he said, I gotta get off the phone and call the chief of police. Mm -hmm. So there were all kinds of miscommunications there that led to this, the, the success of this earlier thing at UVA and then we try, I tried to get into court that night to try and use the evidence of what had happened at UVA to, to, to we, we had lost, remember, in federal right. court at about 8.30 on Friday night, lost this, this free speech case that ordered us to have the rally downtown. And but now you have new safety now we had new Yeah, and there, there's, there's a, as it turns out, I got a text from the president of the university that said, moved, we should move to reconsider based on new evidence. And I got right on the phone to her and said, it's a Virginia litigation technique and, um, and was trying to get our city attorney, trying to get the Virginia attorney general, trying to get the governor's office to do something that night that could have gotten us back in front of a federal judge. The rally was slated to start the next day, I think at 12. Right. And there, nobody, was, nobody was willing to, 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 do, to do that or, or thought that there was a way to get in front of the judge. I still think that that was a missed opportunity because you had enough you had enough evidence from this horror that and people had, had seen. And then what happened the next day was I took an independent investigation that we commissioned from a big law firm to go into to research why our police and the Virginia State Police did not intervene mm -hmm. in the street fighting and the conflicts that happened between the mm -hmm. protesters and the counter-protesters. But when all was said and done, you had open street fighting and you had um, an unlawful assembly declared very quickly and then you had street fighting happen after that and the images of seeing assaults happen all over the streets including this horrific beating of a, of a African-American um, youth in a parking garage and then you had the, um, a car used as a, as a weapon in kind of the ultimate coda to all this which was a terrorist attack mm -hmm. um, where Heather Heyer was killed and 19 other people were, were injured. And, and I think it's, it's important, first of all, to honor Heather Heyer's memory, but it's also important to honor all of the other people who were in danger, because as you say, this was splintered street fighting. Right. The car was a very a horrendous sort of apex to the situation, but there was street fighting all over. Let's come back to this theme of leadership. Leadership is everywhere in the news. There are an incredible number of books um, by well-known authors out there. Um, Doris Kearns Goodwin, the famous presidential mm -hmm. biographer, has come out with a book on leadership. Stanley McChrystal uh, has come out with a really uh, fascinating book on leadership and, and incidentally one, uh, the first chapter of which is dedicated to Robert E. Lee hmm. and talks about the fact that you can have great leaders 
who uh, lead on the basis of uh, deficient moral premises, mm -hmm. and you can have poor leaders who lead on the basis of uh, very powerful moral premises. Um, before we get to your leadership, how do you assess the leadership of these alt-right groups, of these of the Unite the Right, for example? Is this about one person? Is this a splintered movement, with a leaderless movement like Occupy? Uh, what is your assessment of the leadership? I think it's a great question. I think it's generally a leaderless movement that's cellular. Um, I think that it bears all of the weaknesses of those sorts of organizations, which is they have a very hard time translating what they want mm -hmm. into action that an entity will give them. So that the Occupy movement had a very tough time translating what they wanted into action right. by government. The Tea Party movement had just as hard of a time, and I, you know, I'm very critical of them because you see their focus on the debt limit mm -hmm. <laughs> or mm -hmm. fiscal responsibility disappear right. just into the ether recently when you have massive expansion of the deficit. So it's very, with these, with these groups that are really movements mm -hmm. um, that are, you know, and you see in the, in the alt-right, they have, you know, you saw in Charlottesville, there were over a dozen of these groups that came with very different causes. Some of them thought that they were here to protest immigration in Europe. Mm -hmm. And the fracas about the Lee statue somehow became a, a window into that. So there's a lack of a unified purpose, let alone a unified message. And then, I, you know, my, my view is that um, the, the, the traditional leaders that you do have within this movement are um, extremely poor and self-destructive. Mm -hmm. And they are also faced with the uphill battle of if they have anti-democratic ideas like Richard Spencer mm -hmm. or some of these other you know, like Chris Cantwell or some of these other figures in the movement, they, um, they are faced with a system that has been reinvigorated on constitutional principles and is doing everything it can to oppose them and they are not being successful. So you see, you know, to, to me the most extraordinary, one of them out of the Unite the Right event was by revealing to the nation how violent they are and by actually killing somebody and by actually engaging in terrorism and then by hurting so many other people and by having that all on full view mm -hmm. they it was the greatest self-inflicted injury they could have done mm -hmm. in a constitutional republic that already had been invigorated and awake mm -hmm. to these dangers by dealing with you know eight months of, of president donald trump i, I right. believe so the and and the the evidence for that is that in the virginia elections that happened two months late several months later you had a massive surge of progressive voters show up to reject a candidate who campaigned on Confederate imagery. Right. Well, I mean, and I think this, to the extent that social media is a tool for uh, a lot of this, a tool for getting attention focused on oneself, a tool for getting to places and getting to power that one would not otherwise have. Uh, it's clearly, as you're saying, it's backfired. Um, but they also had a stage But not backfired without cost. So I think right. that's important is that the, you know, virt I think virtually everything about, about this era that we're in um, evades easy categorization because there's a velocity to these events and there's a overlapping nature to them that means that we have to be simultaneously in the fight and, and you know, even the way that social media has compressed the news cycle for leaders and, and how much the feedback loop has tightened. So you're dealing with a lot of the time some, you know, some issue that 
literally is produced by somebody live tweeting or live, right. live feeding something that just happened. So the reporter or the constituent groups are dealing with this and that can create lots of mm -hmm. Chaos when there are bad facts in that, or when there's so the social media is part of the problem. It's it, it's, you know. it's a huge part of the problem. I, I I think that it is done far much ill than it has good in terms of our causes as a constitutional republic trying to help people and produce good governance. I think in, in general it does a lot more harm. Well, than and it's good. another example of how it's giving people a piece of something. So right. very often. I happen to be a, a fan of Twitter because I do think it gets news out there. It's a way of sharing things. It's, and, it, and at the same time, as you say, it can be terribly misused. The danger um, is that it, it misleads us on two major fronts, I think. Setting aside the, 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 you know, the lies or the, or the fa factlessness, it polarizes issues into a black and white emotional extreme mm -hmm. where you feel that the issue isn't legitimate unless it is black and white, and unless it causes you to feel, and remember, these are platforms that were designed for adolescents. Right, no, we're normalizing polarization. They're designed to addict adolescents. They're designed to make you addicted to them, so that, that's everything about them. And then the second thing is they are, they're selective. Right. There's no way to get, no way to know, get 140 context. characters, there's, there's zero way to actually, and, and they can't, there's no way to, understand with any depth what the actual issue is. Try explaining the state of First Amendment law on Twitter. I've tried. Or even it's, just the context. I mean, to understand, for example, when people look at the, at the reports on Twitter of the car driving into a crowd, to understand even two or three key points. Uh, what happened at UVA the night before, or the two other events that set the stage. But there were things happening around the country um, following the election of President Trump. A lot of free speech uh, situations, as you know, with, with extreme right speakers at universities, and right. it's not just across the country, internationally as well. Right. Uh, and I think you raise a really important point that people are seeing some of this out of context. Right. Um, on the one hand, they're not seeing the full forces that led to the situation, and they're not seeing uh, the full scope of the damage, and therefore it's very hard to get to a nuanced um, and complex solution to a complex problem. Well, the thing that worries me is that if you you know, my first uh, meeting as mayor, I talked about the danger of a politics of symbolic victories. Symbols are super appealing. I like symbols. We have the Statue of Liberty as a symbol. But when you get into a reality where symbols have displaced actual facts or have displaced what's happening on the ground, that's where the, the, the trajectory of social media has put us into that new landscape and the problem with symbols is they aren't reality and so then it means that you're it's left up to who is superior in the politics of symbols and that's a whole other ballgame that's a that's an entire if, if then you have almost no touch point at all to what government is actually doing what are what are the lives people are actually living what is right. what you're 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 it 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 means that it has become uh, sensation and entertainment and who's a better performer well, and, not, who's, yeah, and who's and, and as you say it's very not, dangerous it's not connected to reality people are not making decisions in a democracy on reality except the fact that there are very real consequences right. like so, the injuries and the death uh, in in your town without it without a doubt
So now I'd like to look forward a little bit. You have been very actively involved in trying to find solutions, uh, not only solutions that would be important for Charlottesville, but for many other towns and indeed many other big cities in the U.S. and internationally. And you've talked about something called uh, Communities Opposing Extremism. Can you talk a little bit about what this organization is? Um, you have a very, very compelling group behind you, um, people like uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, people like Anne-Marie Slaughter, mayors from around the country, uh, the Aspen Institute and others. Um, can yeah. you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and what the objective of the organization is? So the, the primary thing that I came out of this with on the leadership front, and keep in mind that you know, I've taught for many years a seminar at UVA called Leadership, Statesmanship, and Democracy. So it's like, you know, I was in a very good position to realize what I didn't know. And the, the goal of, of coming out of such a messy situation where there are so many imperfect outcomes and so much gray area between these black and whites, but also still a greater need for leadership. So my thinking is that we need more wisdom. Wisdom is a, I've been thinking about wisdom, you know, since I turned 40, mm -hmm. basically, as this lodestar for my life, all of our lives, for our country. We don't think very much about wisdom anymore today. We don't respect wisdom as the goal of a life well lived. We don't see it playing a role. It is, wisdom is the antithesis of so much of what we talked about before, which is the black and white capsule, um, you know, symbolic discussions that you get in, in our social media politics. But the goal of this project, which I started with the, the help of all these other groups, is to generate greater collective wisdom about this topic of dealing with extremism. So we um, put together a, uh, uh, the, the coalition includes, you know, some groups on the right, some groups on the left, um, a lot of political leaders, including ones who have dealt with this just as I had to, and had to deal with. Yeah, you the, mentioned the mayor of Berkeley. The mayor of Berkeley is involved, and he was at this, we did a leadership summit at, in St. Louis at Washington University in late November, where we had extremely candid and frank convenings of leaders. All of them were leaders. We had 150 people come from around the country on these critical challenges, like how are schools dealing with extremism? How are police forces dealing with it? Um, how are mayors dealing with it? What's the, what's the, how does, how are, if you believe in pluralism and ethnic and racial diversity, how are you promoting those goals? And we had leaders who have started nonprofit organizations who are battling this out on a, on a daily basis. And to be clear, you're not talking about uh, excluding any points of view here. No. You're not talking about excluding right-wing political points of view. No, we you're talking about that. excluding violence excluding incitement yep. of criminal activity, excluding the kind of speech that indeed yep. is not even really protected under First Amendment. Is that correct? Yes. Well, well, that's a, that, that, that's a whole other interesting question there about whether it's included by the First Amendment. I started the whole summit by talking about how do we define extremism. It's an open question. The, the definition that I ventured for this group to use is it is that politics which employs uh, intimidation and uh, undemocratic tactics to achieve its outcomes. So these are 
groups that have chosen not to work within the norms and institutions of democracy to try and achieve their political outcomes. And a lot of the time that involves intimidation. Mm -hmm. That's common, you see that across the political spectrum, you see it around the world today, but the, the, those are outside of bounds for the conversation, I think, unless they agree to recommit to democratic norms and institutions and they present, they're the challenge. Okay. And how do you see this organization evolving? Well, the goal is to generate wisdom and alliances. Mm -hmm. So it is the opposite of prescriptive. So why, we talked a lot through it about how this is not generating a five-point plan. What's your five-point plan right. for when neo-Nazis come to your city? Right. What's your five-point plan for if you find a swastika in a public school? Mm -hmm. You know, or if you're a, we're dealing a whole other one on the private sector, what's your five-point plan for, uh, for if an employee has some extremism tendencies or if you want to launch a public-private program to address a rash of online behavior or something like that. There is no, There's it, no one it size doesn't itself. lend itself right. It lends itself to humans right. working within context employing wisdom and using alliances to try and make a better decision than a worse one. That's the, that's the premise of this whole enterprise. So we actually had half of the summit was wisdom circles where you had uh, all these leaders chewing over these predicaments very practically. A good example is the mayor of a southern city called me um, a couple months before the summit and said there's a white nationalist group coming to our city to have a confrontation with uh, pro-immigration group that is doing an encampment at an ICE facility. I've got 15 minutes, how should I approach it? One mayor to another, and I shared with him several lessons from the experience in Charlottesville. Uh, one of them was don't uh, you, you think about the long-term rather than the short-term, because if you get into a battle for the street, that can get to a very bad outcome. Some of it was look in the darker corners of the internet for intelligence that you might right. not ordinarily try and find. One of them was focus on the danger of rogue actors. There, you know, there were insights that we had, but it was up to him to implement them with his leadership team. But the perspective on these challenges has to be extremely pragmatic. It has to be thinking in different ways about them than we might have thought with the, you know, like I think the First Amendment is evolving. I'm seeing it evolve in the courts from these black line tests that courts gave us where it just seemed right. very easy to apply this. And right now you're seeing a different, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were told in Charlottesville, I was told, do not talk about two things after we said that the rally had to happen in a different location that was safer. Don't talk about cost, mm -hmm. three things. Don't talk about cost, don't talk about public safety, don't talk about the content of the speech. So I was in the week leading to Nazis invading the city. I wasn't allowed to talk about Nazism, wasn't allowed to talk about the fact that it was gonna be dangerous, wasn't allowed to talk about how expensive it was gonna be because all of those have been seen traditionally by American courts as stand-ins for making an impermissible decision based this, on this, content. I, I think a number of people would think that the not being able to talk about safety the reason is, is, is really very troublesome. And the reason you're not allowed to do that traditionally, and this is why I think this is evolving, is because that's seen as a heckler's veto. Right. So it's giving credence to somebody who will behave violently in response to mm -hmm. toxic hate speech mm -hmm. 
and it's giving them, by talking about this is going to be dangerous, it's giving them the right to veto the event by saying it's going to make me become violent. So the, the traditional rule of thumb has been public officials don't talk about the fact that it's going to be dangerous, but that is evolving. That is evolving. But that leaves the out the danger that's result, created by the people who are exhibiting the free speech. It leaves out the whole phenomenon. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it, it's a, on paper, it's, it makes sense, but in practice, it doesn't make sense. And so I believe that through the wisdom that we're gaining by events like what happened in Charlottesville, we are becoming more, uh, more astute in our, in our approach to these really dangerous events. And that's the point of this whole communities overcoming extremism approach is to give us more tools and wisdom to deal with this threat. Well, I really look forward to following it. Um, if we can now broaden the lens a little bit, I'd sure. like to ask you more generally, what do you think are today's biggest ethical challenges as a nation or, or globally um, uh, on behalf of humanity? What really troubles you in the news? What do you think are the, the biggest ethical challenges we have to face today? The thing that worries me the most is that we're entering a period like we did before both of the, well, especially before the Second World War, but also before the First World War, where there's an appeal to very deep animal brain sweeping emotional uh, political waves mm -hmm. that, that are translated into us versus them and that can pull states and major huge institutions along with them. Mm -hmm and that we're all participating in this and it's sweeping us along with it and that that can be unbelievably dangerous and violent. That's the, the number one threat that I see even above you know, climate change or, or, or displacement or... So if I understand you correctly, it's a combination of this fixation on the emotion which as you were saying earlier is related to the undermining of expertise to things like alternative facts. Um, that we've been seeing since, um, since President Trump took Think office. Think about it, if, if you have kids, the, the first thing that you do with your kid growing from an infant to a toddler to an adolescent to a grown-up is you're trying to teach them to move away from their, mm -hmm. from their, you know, from their most gut instincts and the, 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 you know, the, the animal brain. I mean, this is basic brain science. You're trying to teach them to use Rational. more rational wisdom and to, and to be self-governing. That, that's, that's probably the greatest test of good parenting. And I, and I worry that we're backsliding despite all of, despite so much, despite civilization and despite the, the trajectory of the world that there's a significant, I think the ethical challenge for everybody now is there is a significant backsliding that's happening and you see it in the politics that's happening. I, I wrote a book about demagoguery. That was the topic of my right. doctoral dissertation. So I've been invested in this problem for 20 years and thinking about it. And I sort of can't believe in front of our very eyes, you're seeing an appeal to authoritarianism and you're seeing an appeal to, to um, base us versus them. Well, yeah, I was gonna say, you know, you, you mentioned sort of black and white versus gray um, and in fact, a lot of that is simplification. It's, yeah. it's, I'm on this side or I'm on that side. I'm in this tribe or I'm in that tribe. I'm, I'm on the black side of the issue or I'm on the white side of the issue. When in fact, the context, to use it also a word you used earlier, 
um, about your, your new organization, the context is quite a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, I start my classes, um, you know, leadership classes I teach by introducing this, this old classic distinction between lumpers and splitters. Mm -hmm. there, there are to explain that. people who lump everything into one pile, and then there are people who split everything into different piles and who say it's more complicated. It's more complicated is like the least appealing thing to say in, in most political contexts. Politics, if you're doing like political campaigns or government 101, it's more complicated than that is not what they're gonna teach you to say. No. But the, and there's always been an appeal to simplicity and to, and to you know, black and white thinking for, since, since we began as humans. But the question is how many norms and institutions do we have built up to enable actual thought, actual complexity, nuance, facts mm -hmm. to make their way into mm -hmm. the critical decisions that we actually need to make. Well, that, and, that's and, the, and the context is more complicated. I mean, technology has made the context infinitely more complicated. People are connected in ways they never have been. Technology like AI, we can't even see. It's a phenomenal uh, point. I, I, you know. I, I couldn't agree with you more, which is that in a very perverse loop, the very things that are making us more vulnerable to dangerous simplification mm -hmm. and that are producing it more and more are introducing more complexity that right. needs to be dealt with by splitters rather than lumpers. Exactly. And we need to actually, you know, I mean, climate change is a wonderful example, right? I mean, climate change has been subjected to the, to the most simplified, terrible, mm -hmm. Uh, politics, especially in the United States of America, whereas, as I understand it, the technical challenges of climate change in so many different arenas really require quite sophisticated engineering and policies, which is what the Climate Accord, and all, you know, in Paris, and, but all these countries, we're going to have to deal with it. And coordination and of science not just, and policy. And, and It's not yeah. CFCs that are regulated right. that are produced from this one source. You're going to have to, if we're going to deal with it the right way, we're going to need you know, a, um, you know, a, a, a Marshall Plan or a, a, right, a, a project. Right, and a multi-stakeholder solution. We're going to need yeah. individuals to participate, corporations to participate, governments to regulate effectively, so, research, etc. So if you ask what I think the ethical challenge is, so you have that premise, which is the danger of mass emotional uh, waves just sweeping aside, and then the, the real danger of those becoming military, right? I mean, which we've seen before. But then the ethical challenge for countries is how do we create a space for, and how do leaders step up? How do you deal with the onslaught against right. reality and complexity? And how do leaders deal with the fact that leading through the gray area on things, wrestling in the gray, as one friend of mine put it, is, is like the hardest kind of leadership. That's when I teach my classes, that is the most difficult kind. So, so let's is, focus on who does that well. Your book on demagoguery was fantastic. Oh. But if you had to pick one leader who you think does it well from, from today or from a period of history, who would you choose as a model for leadership, ethical leadership? Oh, what a good question. What a great question. You know, I mean, I, I teach in my class, um, John Hope Franklin, a great African-American historian, he wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln, was, yeah. uh, about the Emancipation Proclamation. And I teach that book and what he wrote about it as this case study in 
uh, so you know the text that I work that I teach in my class is um, James McGregor Burns's leadership, which is kind of like an oldie but a goodie. So it's before some of the ones that you talked about. But he has these two great distinctions between transformational leadership, which is so appealing, and we love you know the transformational leaders we put on pedestals, and he talks about. Mao and Gandhi and people who really right. transformed a society around them. And then he talks about transactional. Mm -hmm. Transactional has a bad reputation right. because it sounds like buying and selling or just putting together. But transactional leadership is much broader where it's, it's a leader assembling from all the stakeholders around them, mm -hmm. cobbling together and putting together an outcome that is creative and that is imperfect. And this is sort of the making of the sausage, or that, but that, and there's a vast range of how to do it better or how to do it worse. I mean, some of the, the most, you know, some of the accomplishments as mayor that I am most proud of were the most, um, they, they were the ones where I had to put together behind the scenes uh, an ambitious outcome, but that really required nipping and tucking and putting this person in and this group and getting this stakeholder group and this alliance and so right. on. Well, and Lincoln certainly so had to do a lot of that. Lincoln had to do this with the Emancipation right. Proclamation at the highest stage. And it was, he was criticized from all sides about it. And he was right in the thick of, of, a, of a political situation where failure was a very real outcome. I mean, this is when no battle plan survives contact with the enemy, right? right? And he had to do it at enormous personal cost. And he was constantly assembling the, the right path through these shoals where he was kind of being threatened at all sides. And he still managed mm -hmm. to do it both on the social justice front and on the military front. And he pushed a lot of boundaries doing it. I mean, I think it beckons With human this, life at stake. With a nation at stake. Yeah. Yeah. Not just human life, uh, you know, like at no, the moment, but, but the entire mm -hmm. state was at stake, and that was the biggest stakes of all. So in the final few minutes that we have, I'd like to come back to your leadership um, in, and sort of lessons that you've learned. Um, you may have seen Harvard professor Joe Nye Jr. has a great book on ethical leadership, and hmm. the way he uh, divides up his chapters, he has an interesting uh, segment that is basically about report cards. Hmm. And he slices up sort of what would President Eisenhower's report card look like, and what would other um, president's uh, report cards look like. If you look back at your leadership as mayor, what would you say would be the parts that you're the most proud of from an ethical point of view? And what would be the one or two things that you would say, if I had it to do over again, I would have done differently? It's a great question. Um, so I've talked to a number of other mayors who have been in crisis situations like this. And this was fairly unique, the set of events that contributed to this, you know, this very dangerous and violent outcome that happened on that day. And without fail, the one, the one consistency I've heard among them is it's, these are very messy situations where almost nobody emerges unscathed because there was a crisis and because people were hurt and because the quest for accountability itself doesn't have an easy answer. Especially in our system, there was no, you know, it's, it's a complicated outcome because the police are not under the mayor. That right. was not something that people wanted to hear when you have the mayor as the face of the government. Right. But it was, so that, you know, I, I, the things that I'm ethically, that I am um, proud of was, number one, speaking very, honestly and forcefully 
truth to what I saw as the power of this corrupt bargain that had been made between the modern Republican Party and the Trump political campaign and these forces that previously had only been in the fringes and in the shadows. That needed to be forcefully addressed. It came at great personal cost for me because I, of the, you know, I'm the Jewish mayor of a progressive college town and was subjected to un, you know, undescribable um, trolling and, and attacks and very public ones. I mean, Richard Spencer you know, attacking me in this rally at McIntyre Park. And, um, and, but I'm very proud of that. And I think that was the right call. And some of the questions I've had about it is did I unintentionally contribute to the celebrity and the platform of these groups coming to Charlottesville by denouncing it so forcefully? On the other hand, I think that this, we need moral clarity and we need um, leadership. So then the, the, the second tough call, but that I still think that I, that I did the right thing, although I have questioned it and rolled it around in my mind, was having to articulate the First Amendment and to defend the city's position under Supreme Court mandates was really, really hard. It was really hard to explain Nazis versus Skokie to people the second and third times that the alt-right was coming to the city. Right. Uh, it, it, was, it was a brutal, uh, awful task. But we have the law that we have, like, you, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church decision was just announced several years ago where the Supreme Court, you know, doubled down again. They, they mandated that local governments not only can't, this is the church that held up the God hates um, uh, fags posters at military funerals. I mean, just the most toxic, oh. horrific speech that you could imagine. And they, but that but speech they, was upheld. They had a lawyer in the family, and the speech was not only upheld, it was resoundingly upheld. So we have very clear mm -hmm. law. And, you know, as the political official and the only lawyer on council, I'm there having to explain what this is mm -hmm. to the people. Now that has, and I think that, that, it was the right thing to do to explain in these gale force winds still what the law was and to try and mm -hmm. and um, well, it's hard you know, to stand up for. It's hard to criticize explaining what the law is. Yeah, except when you have this challenge, which mm -hmm. I experienced. One guy got up in front of council one time and he said, he said, yeah, 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 I get all that, but I see this as a moral choice. Mm -hmm. And maybe I should have, the, the argument being that maybe I should have, even though it would certainly have lost mm -hmm. in court, maybe I should have voted or led a, led a move to, to, to deny to the permits right. and be sued and right. say, well, I'm going to be here. The problem with that in practice, and here's where it gets really, here's where the facts get complicated, is the second worst thing you can do uh, on top of the worst things about having the public safety disasters right. we had is give legal victories to the alt-right in court. They love legal victories. Right. It makes them seem like heroes within the legitimate democratic system. So that I, I desperately didn't want to give Richard Spencer a legal victory. I mean, or you've some touched on, on a number of things about the ethics here. First of all, it takes incredible courage. Second of all, it's not black and white and it isn't necessarily tethered to the law right. in any particular situation. And third, it's a lot about risk management. Right. And that risk can be giving a voice to people who are ethically toxic, but can also, or power to people who are ethically toxic, but it can also be actual physical risk to human beings. Sure. So, so very complicated. Um,
Thank you so much for all of that. Oh, you're um, is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have? Um, I mean, there might be the question of just what's the um, not feeling or prediction, but the you know, I, I do believe in constitutionalism. I, mean, I do I do think that we will make it through this, but I think that it's going to be extremely costly, and that that's the outgrowth of both of these books and this current project. Is so, that for this for those who don't know the term constitutionalism, you mean? So, constitutionalism is the is the culture of norms and institutions and values that that um, breathes life into the formal document of a constitution. The, the Greeks talked about a constitution, they didn't, it wasn't a written document actually, they saw a constitution as literally that which constituted people together. But it's very much about people, people engaging yes. with the systems. And so my belief is that constitutionalism is, is the thing that really marks America out as truly exceptional in the history of the world's democracies. It's what de Tocqueville talked about when he visited that like the, the, the theme of his entire democracy in America is the mores that we have, which were these values that were embodied, right. that we were sort of breathing life into every day. And it's, and the, so the, if constitutionalism is that, and now we're seeing really anti-democratic, very dangerous native threats within American democracy and across all these other democracies, I believe that constitutionalism will be the solution, but the lesson is that it requires testing and it, it kind of has, it, it's sort of like a muscle that has to be worked out or an immune system that responds to, that responds to, uh, that responds to threats with antibodies but and either it's attacking. Way it's, yeah. Either but way it's it, not passive. It, it's not passive, it, it has real cost. It is a dynamic process that has a ton of, um, a ton of even violence within it as a, as a leader within the fray of that. That's a very unusual experience because you have to keep the long game of, of the resilience of constitutionalism ultimately prevailing. You have to be optimistic about that because if you're cynical about it, then you would retrench and just become a libertarian and not care about the whole project and say, I'm just gonna care about my house and home and my, right. you know, my job or whatever and just give up on the public sphere. That's very dangerous, and we've seen that happen in authoritarian societies. That, that to me, is the highest stake. So what's happening in America, and this is how I see this communities overcoming extremism problem, this is how I see the ethics of political leadership by progressives nowadays, is you have to put an oar in, and you have to put your body and your, your mind into this new chapter in constitutionalism, but it comes at great risk, because you're in the arena, and you are, there are anti-democratic tendencies across the whole spectrum and you're gonna be attacked and scapegoated and vilified and all those are just the costs. But this is maybe another, another point like Lincoln faced where the nation is at stake. Which he, which he experienced, mm -hmm. right. But, but the, the, the project is much bigger than any one of us individuals. And it's and much bigger than the US at this point. That is why when you asked me what the number one threat or my concern was, it is that, it is that Constitutional democratic governments will give way to, to um, nationalistic, authoritarian, uh, animal brain waves that will sweep across norms, institutions, and even state lines, and that could cause great danger and violence. That, that's, that's, and, and what will stop that will be, will be leaders and institutions not giving up. And making ethical decisions, presumably. Right, and, and one of the things, so just as a close, like the, the I, I keep coming back in my mind again and again to the metaphor of a machine with a whole bunch of different 
interconnected gears. And some of them, it's like if you think about this whole thing, the smallest gears are the ones that tend to move the fastest. The biggest ones are the ones that are moving the most slowly. If they're all connected, a lot of the time in our politics today, we want the smallest victory. The smallest victory is the one that happens the quickest. The biggest one, like in so Charlottesville, it took, us, it took us three months to do this independent investigation that finally explained the accountability about what happened with the policing. It took, uh, it took another, I think it took seven or eight months for justice to be delivered in the beating of DeAndre Harris in the, in the parking garage. It took, you know, it's taken, it took uh, another year for the midterm elections to deliver this resounding rebuke to Trumpism on the national stage. So all of these gears are, are moving. We're going to see what's happening with the Supreme Court dealing with, with Russia's interference, well, who, whichever courts deal with it. But the gears move differently. But the point is you have to keep on kind of cranking the, the machine. You have to keep putting fuel into it. Otherwise, it, it stops. And it, it means that leadership, you have to have perspective and you have to understand that some things take months or years to, to to produce a result or to be truly reckoned with. I mean, I tell my students all the time, ethics is about consequences over time, short, medium, and long term. Right, which people uh, forget because absolutely. we want results now yesterday and we think that the verdict will be delivered in 140 characters tomorrow. Right. Well, Mike, thank you so much again. It's really been an honor and a pleasure. Me too. And thank you again for having me in your home. Thank you.